0: Love, talk radio.
1: Welcome to Grok Radio, the following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio, and the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show.
3: Hello everyone, I am Nick Peters, welcoming you to the Deeper Waters Podcast. And yes, that's our traditional intro back again, we got that taken care of. And in fact, some of you are hopefully listening to this on iTunes, because now we have our own iTunes. App. So if you're listening to this and you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive review. Or if you don't like the show, please say absolutely nothing, I'd really appreciate that. Matt We've got a great guest up today for you, and in fact, I like to point out that uh, amusingly this is one of the only one of only two guests in the world who have written very much to you, I can say them. him, welcome to the show, Dad.
1: <laughs> Thanks, son. Good to be with you.
3: And if you don't recognize the voice, I am speaking about Mike Lacona, who as of nearly four years ago now, I can say is my dad since. Boy, can you imagine that Allie's put up with me for four years so far?
1: <laughs> well, she enjoys being married to you, for sure.
3: Yep, and, and she hasn't killed me yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, looking forward to this day, Nick.
3: Okay. Well, let's uh, look at what your bio says about you as well. here. You are the associate professor Professor of Theology at Houston Baptist University and President of Risen Jesus. You have a Ph.D. in New Testament studies from the University of Pretoria, which you earned distinction the highest mark, and you're an interview by Lee Strober in his book, The Case for Real Jesus, and appeared in his video, The Case for Christ. You're also the author of numerous books, including The Resurrection of Jesus, The New Historiographical Approach, Paul Meets Muhammad, and co-author of Gary Habermas award-winning book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus and co-editor of William Dembsky of Evidence for God, 50 Arguments for Faith from the Bible, History, Philosophy, and Science. You're also a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Institute for Biblical Research, and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. And you spoken to more than 60 university campuses and appeared on dozens of radio and television programs. And for anyone who wants more, they just need to visit risenjesus.com. So that's your... You're bio there, but what if someone just doesn't really know you personally yet? What can you tell us about yourself?
1: Well, um, I turned 53 yesterday, and I was uh, became a Christian at the age of 10. Grew up in Baltimore, and um, didn't grow too much spiritually as a teenager. I went to a Christian university, Liberty University, where I was a music major, and um, just developed a real love for God at that point, and, and wanted to go deeper in my Christian faith and uh, I ended up uh, just really being drawn to reading the New Testament in its original language, Greek, so I, I took uh, an elective, used one of my electives my last semester of college and uh, took a first semester of Greek and I absolutely fell in love with it so I decided I wanted to go for a master's degree um, and learn as much Greek as I could, a master's degree in New Testament, so um, I did I wasn't the sharpest student at that point. Um, My GPA wasn't the greatest. I think it was 2.84. And to get into the Master of Arts in New Testament, I had to have at least a 3.0. And I had to have at least a year and a half of Greek. And I was supposed to be a religion major. So there was like three strikes against me. But they were kind. They told me to... um, take a year's worth of Greek over the summer after graduating from college, and then if I passed the Greek entrance exam in the fall, they would let me in on probation. So I did. I um, passed the test. Uh, and they told me I had scored higher than anyone in the history of the school in the Greek entrance exam up to that point. I'm sure it's been passed by now. Um, and, uh, and then I got A's in all my Greek classes. So I just was passionate about Greek. I, I loved it. I had a learning disability. I have ADD, um, and so that made it difficult, but I had a real passion for learning, so I really worked hard with this. Um, it was uh, my last semester in grad school in um, the fall of 1985 that I um, started to experience doubts about my Christian faith for the first time, whether it was true, and it was kind of like a, how do I know that Christianity is true? I believe I've got this relationship with God. Um, I believe Christianity is true. Um, but Muslims believe Islam is true. Um, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, Hindus, they all, you know, especially if they were raised in that tradition, have a, many of them have a very strong conviction that their religious uh, tradition is true. So how do I know that I was really in the truth rather than I had just been brainwashed or brainwashed myself into believing that it was. And this really bothered me. So um, I really struggled with that over the years. Uh, Gary Habermas was huge and helped me through my doubts, at least at that point. And um, later on, I, re- I wanted to, um, you know, Gary had turned me on to the resurrection of Jesus. We had written a book together, as you had mentioned earlier. Um, but I still struggled with my doubts years into it, So around the age of, I guess it was uh, 41, 42, um, mm. I uh, enrolled in a Ph.D. program, something I thought I'd never do, um, had no desire to do it beforehand, but I really wanted to investigate the resurrection of Jesus from a historical perspective, like as though it hadn't been done before, that it, it hadn't been done to that kind of extent before historically, using the, the tools that professional historians would use. So um, I engaged in that and I was just obsessed with it. I realized I had my own bias and um, I I wanted to be able to solve my doubts. So um, my dissertation ended up being three and a half to four times longer than the average dissertation. Um, So yeah, I worked real hard at this and uh, uh, finished up in uh, 2008. Uh, So uh, yeah, that's kind of the journey on that.
3: Now, your dissertation, also, that is, in fact, what your book is, isn't it?
1: That's correct. Uh, my large book on the resurrection, published by IVP Academic in 2010, is just a slightly revised version of my dissertation. and uh, But I wrote it in such a way as to be quite readable, even for the lay
0: person.
3: Now, I uh, think it's important to point this out, because a lot of Christians, I think I've got the wrong idea of reading your book, as if to say, that you were assuming a Christian worldview much of the time when you were actually in- approaching the question of resurrection as if you were a skeptic yourself and studying it that way.
1: That's correct. I made no assumptions. when mm-hmm. I, uh, y- And you can't <clears throat> as a historian. And you, you can as a the- theologian. But when you come to the text as a historian, you can't assume that theism is true, that God exists. You cannot assume that the Bible is divinely inspired or without error in any sense. You can't make such an assumption. Those are faith statements. Um, And so, um, yeah, I, I wanted to apply the tools of history to see what is it that we could actually prove with a reasonable degree of certainty. In historical investigation, there is no absolute certainty. Uh, because historians cannot get into a time machine, return to the past, and verify their conclusions. So we have to apply strictly controlled historical method, and I wanted to see what is it exactly that we could prove with a reasonable degree of certainty using the tools of a historian.
3: Okay, well then, having been said about the, the book on the resurrection, let's talk a little bit also about what you're doing now, which is studying at HBU. Tell us about HBU some. Well, I'm not necessarily studying there. I'm teaching. Right, right. Sorry. <laughs>
1: um, but I am still studying, of course. Um, so, you're wanting to know about HBU?
2: is that
0: Yes.
1: You're, okay. So, um, a few years ago, um, I left the North American Mission Board. Uh, that would have been the end of 2011. And, um, So I went back on my own uh, in our 501c3, our nonprofit organization named Risen Jesus. Um, And plus, I'm duly employed by Houston Baptist University, where I'm associate professor in theology there. Um, HBU is just a wonderful university. Uh, Robert Sloan, Dr. Robert Sloan, the former president of Baylor, when he left Baylor, uh, HBU hired him. And um, so he's been president there for, I, I don't I guess 2005, 2006, he's been president there. It's an NCAA Division I school, um, small school, about 3,000 students. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, uh, it's, seri- it's a seriously Christian school, and it's a seriously academic school, especially in its graduate programs. And um, Dr. Sloan really wants to make the flagship of the university the School of Christian Thought, um, so he hired John Mark Reynolds from uh, Biola University, who serves as the provost, which was a, a great hire. And then he's been bringing all sorts of uh, great people. And I mean, I think about, um, uh, well, he's got uh, Jeff Green, Dr. Jeff Green, who used to uh, chair the philosophy department at Wheaton College and now uh, and got his Ph.D. from Notre Dame. He is, uh, he is the dean of the School of Christian Thought. We've got uh, in the philosophy department. Gosh, I don't even know all the names. So, uh, but Jerry Walls is a, has become a, a dear friend of mine. He got his PhD from Notre Dame, and, and just a, a just a, a great, wonderful Christian brother, um, but a brilliant philosopher. Um, Bruce Gordon, uh, leading philosopher of science. Um, William Lane Craig. Uh, I mean, what can you say about him? I mean, he's He's just phenomenal. He's, he's the best Christian debater that's existed in the history of the, of the church. Perhaps the most effective intellectual Christian apologist in the history of the church. Um, he's got a doctorate in theology, a doctorate in philosophy. Um, one of the leading Christian apologists in the world. Um, so, we've got a lot there. We've got an apologetics department. We'd have uh, you got Holly Ordway. You got. Uh, Uh, Mary Joe Sharp, Nancy Piercy, um, and um, I'm trying to think of of some of the others. Just uh, uh, Melissa Kane, Travis, uh, Lee Strobel. They brought him aboard. Um, Peter David. What's that?
3: Peter David.
1: Uh, Well, he's in theology. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've got uh, Michael Ward, the leading, uh, perhaps the leading C.S. Lewis scholar in the world. and then in the theology department, you, got, you mentioned um, Peter Davids, who's a leading uh, New Testament scholar when it comes to the Catholic epistles. Um, you've got um, David Capes, leading Pauline scholar, mm-hmm. um, and so many other ones. Randy Hatchett, uh, uh, and we've got a classics department. Uh, ben Blackwell, also a New Testament from Durham. Um, classics department, I mean, I could just go on and on. Um, so I'm really excited about what's going on there. And uh, I know that there's some new hire that have just been made. I'm not allowed, uh, I'm not free to say at this point who they are, but I'm very excited about them. They'll be announced uh, in the very near future. So uh, there's a lot that's going on. What I really love about HBU um, is, you know, I I've, I was raised in a Presbyterian tradition um, went non-denominational for a while with the Willow Creek Association churches. Left it, um, and then I was hired by the North American Mission Board to lead apologetics efforts for the Southern Baptist Convention, largest uh, Protestant denomination in North America. And um, you know, especially within the Southern Baptist Convention, there are a lot—not not everyone. Um, I had some some great people I worked with who were very ecumenical in terms of let's bring in people from denom- all, all <clears throat> denominations and, and work together, if we can call them brothers in the Lord, and, um, and you know, they would want to do that. But a lot of Southern Baptists would not want to do that, and uh, kind of exclusive, let's just stay, stay within the Southern Baptist tradition. What I like about HBU, although it is technically a Southern Baptist uh, seminary um, with the Baptist General Convention of Texas, it... Um, with affiliations with with the Baptist General Convention of Texas, it's quite ecumenical. So all of us who are professors there have to sign a basic statement of faith that is like a C.S. Lewis mere Christianity. You've got to believe in the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection, uh, that he's coming again, and the divine inspiration in the scriptures. But pretty much outside of that, um, there's diversity. So we have Catholic professors there who are evangelicals. We have an Orthodox provost. We have Episcopalians, Anglicans. Uh, We have Presbyterians, Baptists. We have Calvinists, Arminians, egalitarians, complementarians. And we all get along. And it's just wonderful. It's just a great environment. About half the students there are non-Christians. And they come from all over the world. We have one of the best nursing programs in the country, if not the best. And our nursing students work right out of a hospital that's next door to the uh, university. So it's really a great place uh, to be, and it's an exciting place to be. I'm just honored to be on faculty there.
3: Yeah, and we've in fact had some of the guests, the professors that say you've talked about on the show before, such as Holly Ordway and Mary Jo Sharp, and next month we will have David Cates on.
1: Wonderful.
3: Now, if uh, students want to enroll... What do they do? What do you have for them?
1: Well, I'm not involved in that process, but they could go to hbu. edu and enroll. I don't even think they charge anything. I don't think the school charges anything to enroll. Tuition is kind of high. Um, I think it's about thirty-four thousand a year for tuition, room, and board. But most students, because there's a few billionaires who give, so that students can get uh, grants and scholarships. Um, uh, I think that very few students probably pay full tuition and some don't pay much at all. So I, I would encourage any student who is interested in checking out HBU to go online and apply. The, the process is free, and it's fairly quick from what I understand as well. So they can do that, and uh, it's it's pretty economical to go to. It probably won't be as economical for most as say, go into a community college. But it can be pretty economical to go there, and it's again, it's just an exciting university to be at.
3: And you can enroll online, also, right? You can study online.
1: Yeah, there are a few programs like um, this. uh, uh, This uh, this fall, there's there's the MA in Christian Apologetics, uh, which can be completed entirely at a distance. So you can complete it. Uh, There's a program, an MA in Christian apologetics, they can complete online entirely at a distance, or you can complete it on campus, entirely on campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next fall, they're looking to launch an MA in Christian philosophy that can be completed entirely, or uh, philosophical apologetics that can be completed entirely at a distance. Right now they have an MA in philosophy that you can do completely on campus. And they're looking at introducing some Ph.D. programs mm-hmm. in theology, in philosophy, and in apologetics in the coming years.
3: Yeah. Now, when you mentioned something about him being an NCAA Division One school, I'm guessing that was sports-related, right? That's correct. No so, wonder uh, I didn't understand it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like Division One A or something. So it's not where the big guys are, like the, uh, you know, the Notre Dames or the Alabama LSU, people like that. Um, it's like one division beneath that. But they're building a stadium right now. It's, just, it's pretty exciting. They have a, a new football team. This uh, 2014 season will be the first season that counts where they're playing in NCAA D1. Mm-hmm. It's just really exciting to see what's going on there. So um, it's a fun school.
3: Now let's also talk a little bit about what you talked about with uh, how you had a low GPA. Some, because I think a lot of people look at you and think that you're a brilliant academic and such. I mean, really, that's not your bend at all, is it?
1: <laughs> no. Um, as I mentioned, I have ADD. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, um, you know, I didn't have good grades in school. Um, I must not have scored too high on my SAT because my first semester in college, I had to take English 100, which is like 12th grade mm-hmm. English. Uh, as I mentioned, I, my, my GPA wasn't that good. I have an average IQ. Um, uh, my dad told me what the number is and um, I'm not going to share it, but it, it's an, it's just completely average. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, I've had to work very, very hard. So there are a lot of people out there that are smarter than I am, but I have a passion and I, and I have a decent work ethic. So, um, if I've been able to accomplish anything, whatever I've been able to accomplish, it's because I work hard, I'm passionate about it. And I, I don't mean this tritely, but, um, um, God has just opened up certain doors. Um, mm-hmm. I just think, uh, <laughs> it's like my life verse comes from Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth where he says, uh, God's chosen the foolish things in this world to uh, confound the wise, the weak to, to confound the strong. So uh, that's certainly the case with me.
3: Yeah, Allie and I like to use that verse also since both of us are technically disabled, but we are kind of people that the world rejects just as much.
1: Yeah. Yep, but, you know, God seems to to, mm-hmm. to like to use those of us who aren't the sharpest mm-hmm. in the shed. Um, you know, what did he do in the first century? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he chose 12 knuckleheads mm-hmm. in a dusty, remote part of the Roman Empire, and uh, from them, the world has been changed, and roughly one-third of the world today mm-hmm. would call themselves Christians, and that came from those, those 12 guys out there, fishermen, laymen for the most part.
3: Yeah, and with, you talking about the uh, educational backgrounds and such, something you and I talk about is that in many ways, we're quite different, because you're the one who really just didn't study Excel a lot in the schoolwork and such, and then for me, I was the one who I went to school and just went straight through everything, got A's, B's, pretty much down the line, and then went home and played video games all day long. (laughs) And Yeah. yeah, Yeah, never had to open my books too much or anything like that even if I was often I got elected the most studious in my class about it kind of makes sense except I don't study
1: yeah your kind make me sick Nick
3: yeah. yeah but here's the important thing I wanted to bring up because as different as we are here's what we have in common and you know I have to do this just as much when it comes to this, stud- to this work in apologetics we both have to study
1: that's correct mm-hmm. um, and it, it, it's the same thing in athletics I suppose mm-hmm. yeah um You know, athletes who make it on a professional level Mm -hmm. are extremely gifted. You have to be. Um, I mean, work ethic can get you so far. It can get you a long way, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to get you... If you don't have talent, it's not going to get you into Major League Baseball or into the NFL. Um, So you've got to have extreme (sighs) talent to become a professional athlete, but you've got to have an extreme work ethic as well and both Mm -hmm. have to go together.
3: And I'm remembering how... I think it was Edison's quote, I was saying, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Yeah, that I mean When a few months ago, Ari and I had to come and house sit where you are while you were off uh, vacationing somewhere. Or I don't remember all the details, but I do remember saying, yep, your library is right there. I am seizing the day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And that's only part of, of course, you know, most of, a lot of the library now you can get on, like, Logos or mm-hmm. Accordance, mm-hmm. Um, certain Bible software. So I've got tons of books, not even in this library, but are on my computer. Mm-hmm. And then Kindle. You know, I think I'm going to start using Kindle because uh, I'm just running out of room now.
3: Yeah, I always really think I've got a Kindle now. Yep. I, I say everything I was saying because, There are so many different people who are listening to the show, and some people are saying, look, I'm just not an academic. I want to do this stuff well. I want to be able to succeed, but I'm not an academic. And I say, well, neither is Mike, and he succeeds. And then some might say, well, geez, I've got a a natural gifting. Do I really need to work so hard? And then you could say, well, my son-in-law has a natural gifting, and he says you have to work hard also. So either way, if you're listening out here and you want to succeed in this, you're going to have to work regardless.
1: Yeah, but, you know, those who are successful in it, you know, they love what they do. Yep. So it's not like um, you got to prod someone. Yep. I, I never prod any of my students when it comes to these things, uh, especially the grad students. Mm-hmm. They're doing it because they like to. So mm-hmm. I don't have to, and I don't want to babysit, so I don't prod people. If they don't do it, they don't do it, but it, it's no sweat off my back. It's mm-hmm. They do it for themselves.
3: Yep. So a person who just loves apologetics
1: and wants to succeed in it, you always catch them with a book in their hand. Um, <laughs> they're always reading a book or a journal article or doing something uh, because it's their passion. They love it.
3: Yeah, I, I can picture Ari in our bedroom right now who's overhearing this and probably rolling her eyes and saying, yes, don't remind me, he's always got a book with him. <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: You know, anyway, let's start talking about your latest research project. And You've been studying someone named Plutarch. Now, who exactly is Plutarch?
1: Well, Plutarch um, wrote around the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, and um, he was an ancient biographer. Um, so he, uh, much of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. Mm-hmm. Um, he he wrote over sixty biographies, of which fifty have survived, um, and of those, it's real interesting. Nine of them involve uh, as I was finishing reading those 50 a couple of years ago, nine of those involved people who lived at the same time and who knew one another. Um, so that that's pretty neat. These nine, we can go back and we can compare them and see how Plutarch reports the same story multiple times. So what, what got me into this, Nick, was uh, Bart Ehrman and many other skeptics. Ehrman's probably the most prominent of them. Um, they would talk about contradictions in the Gospels, differences in the Gospels, and that this meant that they were historically unreliable. So, um, you know, I realized as one who studies the resurrection of Jesus, that if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, even if it were to be the case that some things in the Bible aren't. Um, and if Jesus rose from the dead, let's say he rose in the year 30, the first piece of New Testament literature wasn't written until the mid to late 40s, so that's at least 15 years. Um, So if Jesus rose from the dead, was Christianity true in, in that period between the resurrection and the first piece of New Testament literature being written? Well, of course so. So if that's the case, then how could it be that an error in some of the New Testament literature would negate... truth of Christianity. Um, So I realize that the inerrancy of the Bible just is not a fundamental doctrine uh, that I I think as a result of the conservative uh, resurgence that occurred as a response to theological liberalism, the conservative resurgence that occurred in the 1980s may have gone too far in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have too much of a, a wooden View of what what a divinely inspired scriptures are supposed to look like, um, and uh, what I was finding is that a lot of Christians were of the opinion that it's a, it's kind of an all or nothing. If anything in the Bible is false, then you can't trust any of it, and that just didn't make sense. It's you know it wouldn't yeah. make any more sense to say well. If any one thing in the Bible is true, then it must all be true.
3: Well, mm-hmm. that's not
1: true. We wouldn't do that for any piece of literature.
3: No. Um, mm-hmm. So, But
1: it was shaking the faith of Christians a lot. And so I realized this is certainly an issue that ne- needed to be dealt with. And so um, through the work of people like Richard Burridge at King's College in London, uh, Craig Keener at Asbury in his Historical Jesus of the Gospels book, um, you've got uh, David Alney at, uh, at Notre Dame and, and Charles Talbert at Baylor and some others, they were talking about the Gospels belonging to Greco-Roman biography. And uh, the reason, of course, you'd say, why Greco-Roman biography rather than Jewish biography? Well, for some reason, uh, Jews of Jesus' day were not writing biographies of their sages. We, we don't know why, but they weren't. The closest thing we have is Philo's Life of Moses, and most scholars believe that this is not a biography. Um, Josephus's autobiography—that's not of the same genre. So, if the biblical authors were going to write according, the Gospels according to a specific genre, Greco-Roman biography was the only game in town. And the biblical authors of, of uh, the rest of the Bible wrote according to specific genres. So you have the historical books of the Old Testament like Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel. Um, you've got songs, which is songs or poetry. You've got wisdom literature like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. You've got the, po- uh, the prophetic books. You come to the New Testament, you have Acts, which is historiography. You've got all the epistles or letters by Paul and Peter and so forth. And then you've got Revelation, which is uh, apocalyptic literature. You've got Uh, Hebrews, which uh, many scholars today say it's either a letter or many would say it's a homily, it's a sermon. Mm -hmm. So uh, if all of the rest of the biblical literature is written according to a specific genre, why would we think that the Gospels, uh, God would make an exception there? It seems that he would write according to, uh, have the authors write in a specific genre, and again, Greco-Roman biography is what they would have used, it would appear. So um, my understanding this, genre in which the Gospels were written. And just because it says biography doesn't mean it's the same as modern biography. And what people like Keener and Burridge and others were saying is that ancient biographers uh, took some flexibilities in the way that they reported events that we may not use today. Um, And so this, you know, this could result in differences. Well, the thing is, most of these authors, though, they would talk about the flexibilities, but there was not a whole lot of specifics that were given in terms of the type of flexibilities. So uh, what I decided to do was to look at these different biographies in antiquity within, say, 150 or or 200 years on each side of Jesus. I made a list. There's just under 100 of them. I don't know, 80 to 90, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what brings us to Plutarch, who wrote 50 of those, and then... I got to those, I read through all of those, identified the nine that involved figures who lived at the same time, who knew one another, participated in many of the same events. And so Plutarch is going to tell the same stories multiple times. Um, And so what I did was I've gone through those the last three plus years, I've been going through those with a fine-tooth comb, I've been able to identify 42 stories that appear two or more times in these nine biographies. And as I've gone through 32 of them so far, uh, very, very carefully, I'm noticing all sorts of differences. And what then becomes interesting, you say, well, is he just being sloppy? Well, is he, what, what, what's going on here? Well, then you start to see the same kind of differences pop up. And this suggests to me that this is a compositional device, that this was intentional in Plutarch's part.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I've been able to identify five of these using this method uh, of uh, that I'm, I'm employing five compositional devices that Plutarch is using, and this can account for these differences, uh, mo- most of the differences within Plutarch's lives. When I come to the Gospels, I've been reading them in Greek uh, exclusively for the last six years, and then what I'm finding, uh, all sorts of differences are popping up. I've put together a document of more than 50 pages of these differences, but then what's interesting is now that I'm understanding Plutarch and what he's doing, when I come to the Gospels, I find that they're doing the same kind of things. And so they're employing the same kind of compositional devices that Plutarch did. So the, many of the differences, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them, and I would say the biggest ones, um, differences in the Gospels can be accounted for, not as contradictions. But as intentional compositional devices that were employed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, since he brought up, Ehrman, In one of his biggest things is inerrancy. There are some misconceptions people have about you of inerrancy. So let's go ahead and clear some of those right up too. As where, well. first off, okay. do you hold to inerrancy? Yes. Okay. And what do you mean by inerrancy?
1: Well, I'm not sure to be honest with you. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the Bible is certainly inerrant in all that it teaches or all that it affirms. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as I've studied these compositional devices, I, I think that this can be, the, the depth how we define error becomes something of importance. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, I agree with uh, John Walton and Brett Sandy in their book, The Lost World of Scripture, that um, uh, given what we're understanding about oral tradition, especially in in the, the world of the Old Testament, but also in the world of the New Testament, what we understand about oral tradition, what we're understanding about, uh, what I'm coming to understand through Plutarch as compositional devices. I've also been studying Theon, and I can see he, he was a literary instructor from the first century, and the, the, several different ways he talks about paraphrasing. Uh, this accounts for a huge number of differences we find in the Gospels. And then you have a redaction that's going on as well, uh, editing. Uh, Matthew edits Mark. It, it's clear that he edits Mark on a number of occasions. I could give several examples. Um, John edits material. So when you see this kind of stuff going on, you're saying, well, what actually constitutes an error? And that becomes a little difficult. If we're going to require history to be recorded in a modernist sense, then we're going to have errors in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we are uh, being studious, diligent to understand how history was actually written back in those days, what were the rules of their day, I don't think we're going to see so much um, errors mm-hmm. um, as many would identify. Yeah.
3: Now the book you were talking about was The Lost World of Scripture. And I think for anyone interested, I did interview Brent Sandy, one of the co authors of that back on October 26th of last year. And yes, this is a book but if you are a serious student of the Bible, you have to read this book.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's interesting in there that uh, Walt and Sandy said that um, uh, that there are no definitions. And again, understand that these two guys embrace the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. They teach at Wheaton College mm-hmm. where professors are required to hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, um, and yet they say, and the school has not complained, they even ran the manuscript by the school for approval before it was published and it was approved, in that book they say that pretty much the time has come, given our understanding of orality, oral history, and and how, and they focus on oral history. Mm. Um, they say given this, uh, time has come when inerrancy may no longer be an adequate term to describe our um, are, are, are thoughts about the Bible. We do think it's divinely inspired. Um, uh, you get out of the United States, they don't so much talk about inerrancy. They talk about infallibility, or the Bible being, I think, uh, someone like an N.T. Wright would say the Bible's authoritative. It's God's authoritative word. Um, so again, the inerrancy thing might be more of um, a move away from liberalism, but maybe too far in the other direction. It just depends how we're going to define inerrancy, I think.
3: Now, you've also been accused of saying that the Gospels have embellishments, such as the soldiers falling back when Jesus says, I am he. So do you think the Gospels have embellishments?
1: Possible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, I think, I, th- did they actually fall back as John said? Who knows, you know? Um, John's the only one that reports out. That. that doesn't mean it didn't happen because only one person reported it. Mm. Um, you, you know, Nick, uh, I've, as i said, the last six years I've been reading through the Gospels exclusively in Greek. I've spent most of my time in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, still spending time, more time in Luke. Um, but I started going through John again recently, and John reads so differently than the synoptics, um, it's hard to know what's going on. And, uh, you know, you brought a quote to my attention, I think it was last week, uh, from N.T. Wright, where he says, uh, you know, um, uh, it, reading the Gospel of John is, is, is kind of like, uh, uh, the relationship with John is like the relationship with his wife. With Tom Wright's wife, uh, he loves her, but he doesn't understand her. And I think most Johannine scholars would uh, would say something similar to that. Mm-hmm. There is um, a di- uh, a division, um, uh, a section, I should say, of the society of biblical literature called uh, John and history. And um, and so, and my doctoral supervisor, Jan van der Watt, was a uh, is a Johannine scholar. Uh, you know he freely admits so it's just difficult to know at times what John is doing John is certainly adapting the text, even F. F. Bruce um, in his commentary on John the Gospel of John and John's epistles uh, says that John adapts the material significantly um, Craig Keener uh, who has written one of the, the best commentaries on the Gospel of John ever, especially when considering the historical aspects says that all uh, Johannine scholars admit that John has adapted the material, so um, it is kind of hard to know what John is doing at times. That's not to say that John is lying. That's not to say that um, John is off message from what the synoptics. I think John is presenting the same message as the synoptic gospels are presenting. He's just doing it in, in a, a very, very clear terms. He
0: is he is making it trying to make crystal clear, I think, after
1: decades of reflection on the teachings of Jesus. And he, he would have been one of Jesus' closest disciples. So did did John, uh, did these people actually fall back, the guards, when they said, uh, Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, me," the Greek, for I am he, uh, which seems to be an allusion to uh, God at the the um, burning bush in Exodus, Egoi me, I am, I am that I am. Is Jesus, like John seems to be portraying Jesus as claiming to be God there, and then they all fall back to the ground. Did they do that? Not perhaps. You know, um, Middle Eastern culture, um, even today, are very, very expressive. Um, Mm -hmm. So much so that, you know, those of us in Western culture think it's just kind of crazy, but that's just their culture you know, tearing clothes and the high priest tearing clothes and charging Jesus of blasphemy. Why do you have to tear your clothes and all this stuff? Um, You know, could they, if Jesus had claimed to be God there, could they, out of such a response, just fall back to the ground uh, as overacting, over-response there, perhaps? Um, Or could John, in order to make a theological point, uh, there have, uh, I don't know that you would, Maybe legend is not the, the proper term, but could he have invented that detail and put it in there in order to communicate to us that Jesus had been claiming to be God? Um, I think that's possible. I don't, I've asked some Johannine scholars on this, and they say, you know, some say, yeah, John is definitely doing that. Others say, you know, we'll never know, will we? Mm-hmm. So um, as a historian, I've got to be open to that. And I don't think that that impacts anything. That doesn't mean that it's an error. Um, we don't think it's an error in Psalms when the psalmist, I think it's Psalm 74, when the psalmist says that um, God is sleeping and asks God to get up out of his sleep. Well, we recognize that that's poetic literature. Ancient biography could do those kinds of things. John takes greater liberties, for sure, than the synoptics do. Is that what he was doing? I don't know. He would have been within his right to do it. Um, mm. But was he doing that? I don't know. I don't think it's problematic if he did, though.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, someone might want to say also, well, why should we study Plutarch, though? We've got the Bible. Isn't that all we need?
1: Well, what Plutarch does for us, Nick... And you're right. Uh, Some that I've corresponded with on Facebook would do say that. Mm. But Plutarch, if if we're going to understand ancient biography and how it worked, if that's what the Gospels are, why wouldn't we want to understand that genre? Mm -hmm. And in order to understand it, you're going to have to go outside the Bible for that. Otherwise, you could say, um, um, how are we going to understand wisdom literature, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes best? Or how are we going to understand Psalms? Why is it that we don't take some of the things in Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, why is it that we don't take some of those things literally? Well, because we understand it's a, a genre. Well, how do we understand it that way? Um, isn't it best to look at extra-biblical literature? Or, really, how would we understand Hebrew or Greek? Um, uh, you know, if the meaning of those terms back then, well, you know, you, you get Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, uh, and uh, various Greek lexicons, and they're going to appeal to uses of those same Greek terms in extra-biblical uh, uh, literature. So we appeal to these to understand the very meaning of words. Mm-hmm. We appeal to these to understand various idioms and figures of speech. So why wouldn't we do this to understand uh, the genre? It just I, 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 I don't understand why someone would say, just look at the Bible to understand the Bible. We can gain great understanding from extra-biblical literature.
3: I actually think it's a, a kind of laziness that's been built into our modern American minds so that if we go beyond the text, where we're no longer really relying on the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking, if the Holy Spirit also expects you to do your own work, too.
1: Well, yeah, and Paul was familiar with extra-biblical evidence. You know, he quotes it at the Areopagus in Acts 17. He quotes it uh, throughout uh, various letters at times. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I don't see why there's a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that we um, look at those extra-biblical writings as though they're divinely inspired. No. It doesn't mean that everything those extra-biblical writings say are true. Of course not. Um, But it does help us to understand the genre in, in which the Gospels were written mm-hmm. um, and, and things like that. We understand Paul's letters a little better because we understand, like, um, you know, when he says he writes this letter, I, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and then you understand the use of secretaries and tertius in Romans 16.22 uh, by studying, like uh, Randy Richards did at Palm Beach Atlantic University, mm-hmm. Uh, he's probably the leading expert on secretaries in antiquity, you know, people who would, scribes who would write on behalf of someone else. And and we we understand this from the letters of Cicero and Atticus and, and things like this, uh, where we can understand their use, their role within writing letters, various roles to different degrees that they can take. Mm-hmm. So extra-biblical literature can be good. And... Yeah, perhaps in some cases it is a matter of laziness on the part of the other person to say the Bible only, not going to study anything else. Of course, they'll study commentaries, I guess, so that, um, that would eliminate that.
3: Well, I'm pretty sure a lot of them wouldn't even study commentaries. As if God wants me to know, the Holy Spirit will tell me.
1: Yeah, and then, so what happens then, something like, uh, you know, within the evangelical world right now, unfortunately, there's a debate that goes on about Calvinism and Arminianism, and some make a real big to-do over it. Well, when you have a, a, a very two very seriously minded evangelical Christians who are studying and relying on God to give them answers, and one is a diehard Arminian and the other is a diehard Calvinist, what do you do with that? God's mm-hmm. not the author of confusion. Yeah. Um, maybe by understanding extra biblical literature, we might be able to do, it might shed light on some of these things. These things within the Calvinist Arminian debate that could solve this problem for us. Um, you know, take for example Jesus' statement about if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off mm. um, hopefully we're not going to take that in a literal sense although many Christians in the early church did um, but that's a hermeneutical blunder that unfortunately can have tragic consequences if the wrong body parts cut off so uh,
2: yeah, you know,
1: when you look at uh Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher, um, perhaps the greatest Roman mind from the first century, he lived around the same time as the Apostle Paul. And he wrote that if your heart's wicked, rip it out. Mm -hmm. Well, by understanding, uh, seeing that this is uh, a figure of speech, an idiom of the language, um, we would know that Jesus' words there were not meant to be interpreted in a literal sense. Mm
0: -hmm. Because really,
1: there's nothing in that text in Matthew or Mark That would suggest otherwise, that we're not supposed to tear off or cut off the potty part if it's causing us to sin. Mm. When you read Seneca, it makes perfect sense.
3: Now, some modern thinkers might say, well, how can we say the Gospels are biographies? I mean, we hardly hear anything about the childhood of Jesus, and biographers are supposed to cover that.
1: Yeah, good question. Well, of course, that applies to modern biography, but not to ancient biography. Um, Now, Richard Burridge, in his book, What Are the Gospels? This was the book that uh, really made a difference. It was a game changer in the world of New Testament uh, uh, scholarship. And in the early 90s, uh, most scholars believed that the Gospels were of a unique genre. But this book, you had people like Charles Talbert and and, um, David Ani and some others who were claiming back in the 70s and 80s that the Gospels were ancient biographies. Uh, Burge took issue with that and did his own very in-depth study, and uh, he concluded that the Gospels were ancient biographies, Greco-Roman biographies. But he had a very limited uh, um, pool of sources that he considered. Um, so uh, I lost my train of thought, Nick. Um,
3: childhood. Um, no, oh, okay. So country. in that
1: book, Burridge uh, says that the ancient biographies he looked at uh, most of them do not, you know, they only mention the childhood, and then they go right into the adulthood. Well, in my study of Plutarch, of those 50 biographies, um, many of them consider the childhood of the person, but many of them did not. So I guess the point I would make is, in ancient biographies, I, I don't know the count, if I were to count them, how many of them mention the childhood and how many don't, mm-hmm. but I Uh, If I had to take a rough guess, and this would be very, very rough just based on my reading of Plutarch and those 50 biographies a few years ago, I'd say maybe half of them talk about the person's childhood. The other half don't. They just mention the guy's birth, maybe who the parents were, and then maybe one little thing from childhood, and then boom. The next time it picks up is in their adulthood when they're starting their career. So uh, what we find in the Gospels would be typical of ancient biography. Not required, but typical.
3: And we should point out that some aspects in Plutarch that, in fact, these biographies are seen as, for the most part, historical, that they do also contain miracles and things of that sort.
1: They do. Some miracles, a lot of portents, portents Mm -hmm. or uh, heavenly signs, things like that, they would consider things like eclipses of the sun and comets, those would be portents. So they would talk about other things. They they reported apparitions, and um, Suetonius, one of our greatest historians from antiquity, one of our most accurate historians from antiquity, reports an apparition. Um, so, yeah, these uh, you would find supernatural things occurring in these ancient things. And I'm not saying that they're all true. Uh, some of them I would think would be invented. Some could be literary devices. Some could be just invented and put in there. Some could be legend that accrued in the account over years and were later included by Plutarch or others. Um, You know, any of that's kind of possible. This thing that the supernatural doesn't exist, that's a modernist conception. And in fact, you know, that era is uh, is passing away. Um, And people today, even scholars, are warming to the idea of the supernatural. The epistemological ice age of modernity is coming to an end springs in the air. Um, so, um, um, you know, most people today believe that there's a supernatural element to reality. Um, uh, two Jewish researchers, I'm trying to think of their names, um, they did a, a study back in, uh, published in 2007, showing that a majority of, um, of, um, of, of American scientists theists. Mm -hmm. Um, They they believe that God acts in our world. Uh, Rodney Stark of Baylor University uh, did a study and found that I think it was 40% of the leading scientists in the U.S. believe that God answers prayer. So um, uh, even people like um, Dale Allison, uh, who teaches at Princeton, who has called himself a deist, has called himself a Christian, has called himself an agnostic, um, he he uh, claims to have seen an apparition of the dead. So um, I don't think we're so much against the supernatural as we were maybe ten, twenty years ago any longer.
3: Well, let's also deal right quickly and very briefly with a popular objection, maybe in regards to biographies that some people would say that the Gospel couldn't be a biography of Jesus since Jesus. Never really was a real person. Heck, Plutarch never even wrote about him anyway, so there you go.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, they they can claim what what they want. Some are going to say that. Some are going to deny the Holocaust today. There are a handful of historians in our world, professional historians, who say the Holocaust never existed. Um, None of them are widely respected historians, but they're still there. Uh, So you're never going to have a unanimous 100%. 100% unanimous consensus among scholars about anything. Um, You're not gonna have a 100% consensus among scholars saying that Jesus existed. Um, But you're gonna have nearly that. You're gonna have well over 99% of historians and biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, historians of Jesus who would say that he existed. There are a handful who say that he didn't. Their arguments I think are quite weak um, problematic and they have failed to convince scholars. So mm-hmm. um yeah.
3: And for my audience who's listening, contrary to what some people might think, Richard Carrier, aside from the internet, just doesn't really have a large following, does he?
1: No, no, I'd like Rick Carrier. Um I think he's a brilliant guy. Um, you know, he's got a PhD in ancient history from Columbia. So he's a he's a smart guy. Um you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to debate him twice. We've had nice debates. I consider him a warm acquaintance. I've, I've got no beef against uh, Rick. Um, his following would be people on the Internet. Um, you'll have some scholars who would read him, um, but he, he wouldn't be considered... Um, he's not someone that is going to be considered a serious New Testament scholar or Bible scholar... I don't think he's got a, a position of prestige within the world of, of professional historians.
2: Mm. Um,
1: again, his following are, are going to be, you know, people on the Internet, probably younger people like high school students and some college students. That's not to say he won't have some others, but, uh, but he's, a, he's a pretty smart guy. I, I think he's a, a decent communicator. He's, he's got a nice way of writing. Um, I, don't, I don't buy his arguments, and, and some of them are just outright false.
3: Now, some people also would be saying, yeah, but when we're talking about biblical scholars, we're obviously talking about Christians. So you're pretty much saying 99% of Christians would have a problem with this. Of course they would.
1: Yeah. Um, well, Yeah. Of course, someone who would say that just isn't familiar with New Testament scholarship. And, you know, I understand that. If, if they're not spending time with this, if they're not attending meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature, you know, they're not familiar with it. The, the world of scholarship. But, I mean, take, for example, a uh, Garrett Ludeman, an atheist New Testament scholar, or a Bart Ehrman, uh, who calls himself a happy agnostic, and he's a New Testament scholar. Mm-hmm. Maurice Casey, I don't know what he refers to himself, but I mean, he denies, he denies the supernatural, he denies the resurrection of Jesus, he's a New Testament scholar. John Dominic Crossan mm-hmm. is pretty much an atheist. Stephen Patterson of the Jesus Seminar. Um, I, I don't know what he would call himself, but, I mean, Patterson told me before our debate, and we had a, a pleasant debate. It's posted on my website, risenjesus.com, where someone can listen to it. But um, Patterson told me, you know, he, he, I asked him, do you believe that God exists? He says, eh, I don't know. He might exist. If God exists, he's certainly not a personal being like we find in the Bible. He might be a, a force of some sort. Steve, do, do you believe there's an afterlife? Uh, eh, I don't know. I, I tend to doubt it. But even if there is, it's not like we're going to be in heaven or something like that. And yet when he got up in his debate, in our debate, he said, Mike and I are Christians celebrating Easter together. So, um, <laughs> you know, you can have
3: what celebrating?
1: Christian, but I don't know that that would be acceptable or, or the kind of definition of Christian yeah. that the apostles or Jesus would have
3: uh, uh, recognized. You know, so. Well, let's get into Plutarch. Now, you've said before you found five devices that Plutarch uses in his writing that could explain some many so-called contradictions. So what's the first device you've found?
0: Well, we
1: could call that compression. Mm-hmm. And compression is when an author knowingly portrays events over a shorter period of time than they had actually occurred. Um so uh let's just say I'm having an uh I'm I'm telling uh you about an email correspondence that I had with Gary Habermas. Mm -hmm. And I'm representing that as though it happened in one day when in reality it involves multiple correspondences that had occurred over two year period. I'd be compressing the accounts.
3: Right. Now an example of this in the in Plutarch would be what?
1: Well, um, in April of 56 BC, Julius Caesar is a pretty powerful guy at that point. He's, he's not uh, the, uh, hasn't come into power yet as the sole dictator of Rome. That wouldn't happen until 49 BC. So you're looking at uh, seven years later. Um, at this point, there are two guys in Rome named Pompey and Crassus. And Pompey and Crassus are the two most powerful men in Rome. And they want to become consul, elected consuls for the year 55. Now, the consul would be the highest position in the Roman Republic. It differs from, let's say, the president of the United States um, in that uh, the president serves for four, a four-year term, the consul would serve a one-year term. The president serves uh, alone, the consul as a, a colleague. So there are two consuls who serve together each of them have, uh, I think they have equal authority. Um, and, yeah, uh, they can, the President of the United States can be re-elected to a second term consecutively. The consul cannot. The consul uh, can be elected as many times, re-elected as consul as many times as they like, but they have to wait 10 years between serving as consul. So anyway, Caesar, just to give you an idea of how the, the political landscape worked. Caesar is a pretty powerful guy. Pompey and Crassus come to him in 56 BC, and they say, hey, we want to be elected consuls for next year. Um, And will you help us? And so Caesar says, yeah, I can call in some favors back in the city of Rome. Um, I can send my soldiers in. They'll vote for you. We can get you elected. But I want something in return. I've got this military command right now out here in Gaul, and I'd like you to extend that military command for five years if you get elected. And so they... Fist bump on it. You got it. Let's do it. They shake, and then uh, Caesar lives up to his end of the deal, and he gets them elected, um, and then they end up to their live up to their end of the deal, and they get Caesar's military command extended for five years. Now that's the story, but here's how the laws uh, in here's how the laws go down. When once Pompey and Crassus are elected as consuls. They take over on January 1st, 55 BC. Now the consuls would typically, once they leave office, they would be given what are called provinces. And there were several provinces throughout the Roman Empire, and they would each be given provinces in order that they would serve as, as ruler of those provinces for one year, the year after they were consuls. So the first thing that happens is they propose a law that would give them consular provinces for five years rather than one. All right, so that's one law. That gets passed. That's in January. A few months later, perhaps April, then they bring up Caesar and they say, hey, uh, we want to extend his consular, his proconsulship, his his command for five years. And that gets approved. That's a second law. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Life of Cato, the biography of Marcus Cato. Biography. I'm sorry, uh, Plutarch presents those as two separate laws, and, the, and they were two separate laws, and they were presented at two separate times, um, and so it's accurately reported this way in Plutarch's Life of Cato. But in Plutarch's Life of Pompey and Life of Crassus, this is presented as a single law. A single measure in which both uh, a single occasion in which both measures are passed. So what Plutarch does is he compresses the two events into one. He doesn't need to do two separate ones. The reason he does the two separate ones in the life of Cato is because Cato objected to both of these measures. and in one case he was hauled off to prison because his objection was so strenuous. Um, but and this is important because you, for Cato, because it illustrates his character is one, unswerving in terms of his commitment to Rome and, and his integrity. But this isn't the purpose in the life of Pompey and, and the life of Crassus. So um, he compresses the stories for purposes of economy. So that's compression in Plutarch. I could give you several other examples, but, but that's, that's just one of them.
3: Well, before we move on to the Gospels, I can like remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. My guest is my father-in-law, Mike Lacona, New Testament scholar at Houston Baptist University. But if you're listening next time, my guest is going to be Dr. Paul Copan. We're going to be talking about the question, Is God a moral monster? Looking at incidents in the Old Testament that call God's character in the question. So I hope you'll be listening when we, we get that podcast out there. Dr. Paul Copan, Is God a moral monster? Now, when we come to the Gospels of compression, the scene that pops in my mind immediately is Luke 24 contrasted with Acts 1. Uh,
1: so that would be the resurrection appearances. Yep.
3: Yeah, well, yeah. in Acts 1 it says that he stayed there for 40 days with many convincing proofs. I mean, in Luke 24 it looks like it all happens in one day.
1: That's correct. That is a, a very clear example of compression in the Gospels. And and of interest, is this is one of the, the examples that skeptics like Ehrman appeal to, to say we've got a clear contradiction in mm. the Gospels. And yet, um, you're right, when, it, when you look at Acts chapter 1, uh, Luke says that Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. But when you look at Luke 24, written by the same author, um, Luke mm. portrays the resurrection all of the appearances and the ascension that's occurring on Easter. Mm -hmm. So Luke is clearly compressing the accounts here. Mm -hmm. How do we know? You know, is it a contradiction? No, I mean, we we find, uh, is it possible that it's a contradiction? Well, it's possible. But when we see compression occurring so often in Plutarch, when we see it also occurring throughout the other Gospels, um, when we see that the same author who writes Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 1 also wrote Acts 24, um... And compression was a common literary device uh, to insist that this is a contradiction. Um, is really, I, I, I think, desperate on the part of the skeptic.
3: Yeah, uh, you meant Luke twenty four instead of Acts twenty four, right? Oh,
1: Luke twenty four. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, Luke is, and so they talk about, you know, where where did the appearances occur? Where the first appearances in Jerusalem, as uh, Luke says. Or was it in Galilee, like Matthew says and you know Mark implies? Well, it, it, I, I think it was probably Galilee. But because Luke is compressing the story um, and everything is going on in Jerusalem or in the surrounding area, hmm. then it, it, it's, it, it has to happen. The first yeah. appearances have to occur in Jerusalem because it's all happening on Easter. Why does he do this? I don't know. Luke has the longest gospel, and uh, the gospels or biographies were typically confined to a single scroll, which is no, no more than twenty five thousand words. Luke has twenty four thousand in some Greek words, so um, so he's, he's coming up on the the maximum uh, length, so he might be doing it for to be brief, mm-hmm. or he may do it to make a point that you know Jerusalem is the center for the church at that point. Um, we, he might be doing it for dramatic purposes. I, we don't know why he did it. He doesn't tell us, but it, it would appear that he is employing compression there.
3: Yeah, and we're not telling the skeptic at this point to assume inerrancy, but one thing I think we should encourage the skeptic to do and anyone to do if any writing is follow the principle of charity with yeah. interpretation and say, yeah, these two accounts are right next to each other, Let's assume one thing, Luke isn't an idiot, and he knows what he's writing.
1: Right. And you know what, though, I do think that offering charity to the writer is Mm -hmm. the right thing to do, but even if one is not inclined to do that, when one has a common literary device called compression at their hands, a common literary device that biographers would use, and it appears that Luke may be using this. Why would you insist that it's a contradiction here? It's the same author. Mm-hmm. you know. It's yeah. the same author who's writing a sequel to his gospel. Um, it, it's kind of like the difference of the appearance to Paul in the book of Acts. Acts 9, 22, and 26. Yeah. There are differences in these. These differences, I think, for the most part, can be harmonized. Um, I deal with this at length in my large volume on the resurrection of Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, but even if you know, you can't harmonize all of these. You've got to extend charity, because it's the same author in the same book, no less. Uh, it just seems dubious that this guy would just be doing outright contradictions when it's the same author, same book. And I think the same could be said with Luke when he's writing his, uh, his companion sequel to his gospel with the book of Acts. I don't see this as a contradiction. I see it as a compositional device called compression. Mm-hmm.
3: Now let's go with another device. What's the next one you'd like to cover?
1: Well, we could look at displacement, and mm-hmm. displacement is when an author knowingly removes an event from its original context and transplants it in another. Um, let's 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 go back to Plutarch. Yeah. And, um, there's an event that occurs. We don't know the exact dating of it, but. Um, it would, actually, it would have to be after 49 B.C., so sometime between 49 and 44 when Caesar was assassinated. And Caesar is sitting on his throne, and um, at this point a bunch of the Roman politicians, the consuls, the praetors, the senators, they are approaching Caesar in a procession in order to honor him. Well, it would be typical within the Roman Republic for Caesar to stand and respect, uh, return the respect to them. But Caesar wants to be the monarch. He wants to be the king of Rome. He wants to be made the sole ruler of Rome, the dictator. So um, he refuses to stand for these guys to give them mutual respect. And as a result, this is considered an insult to those Roman politicians. And many of the people um, are feel sorry for the politicians, so they leave as a result. And the politicians, of course, are um, uh, insulted. So... Caesar realizes his gaffe, um, and so he pulls the toga back from his neck and invites anyone who wishes to strike him to kill him. So that's this one event. Well, in February of 44 BC, or one month prior to Caesar's assassination, he is seated at the Lupercalia festival. And at this festival, Antony, who we know as Antony and Cleopatra, uh, Antony Uh, was serving as co consul with Caesar that year. And Antony, probably in something that was already scripted between him and Caesar, came up to Caesar and offered a diadem and attempted to put it on Caesar's head. This would be symbolic that Caesar should be made king. Mm -hmm. Well, there's some applause from the people when he does this. So Caesar, not satisfied with this, he kind of pushes it away because it wouldn't look good if only a few people applauded and he accepted the diadem. So he pushes it away to see what the crowd's response would be, and there's hearty applause. Well, then Anthony says, let's try this again. So he goes to put it on uh, Caesar's head, and there's weak applause. And so Caesar pushes it away, and there's hearty applause. They try it like again, and same effect. Well, Caesar gets upset at that, and he storms out of the festival. Well, that's how it is reported um, Uh, in in the life of Caesar, because both of these events happened in Caesar. But when these events are described in uh, the life of Antony, Plutarch omits the first event of the approaching political leaders, because Antony had nothing to do with that, uh, or at least uh, the major part of this. So Plutarch omits that, and then he dislocates Caesar's bearing of his neck. Plutarch seems to like that part of the story. That's something that actually occurred, but but Plutarch dislocates that from that part, and he transplants it at the later uh, Lupercalia festival, so that when Caesar rejects the diadem, and there's great applause, that, Plutarch says, is when Caesar bared his neck and invited anyone who wished to strike and kill him. Now, that fits far better within the first context, as we find in the life of Caesar. Mm. But he still kind of likes that in the life of Antony. so that's what he does there, uh,
0: dislocate it and transplant it in a different context. Both events occurred, they just didn't occur,
1: they weren't coupled like that, if we had actually been there and viewed it.
3: Now, when we come to the Gospels, would the crucifixion of Jesus and the Gospel of John be an example of it?
1: Yeah, that could be one right there. Now, that's one that, um, you know, some of the ultra-conservatives have uh, taken issue with me on, but um, there are are some challenges here when we look at uh, John's report uh, and contrast it with what we find in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptics are clear. In fact, Matthew especially is crystal clear that uh, Jesus' Last Supper was a Passover meal, And then Jesus is arrested that evening and he's crucified the day after the Passover meal. Mm -hmm. When we come to John's Gospel and you start at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, it's very clear that the the meal, the last meal Jesus is going to have with his disciples is not a Passover meal because it says the Passover had not yet come. Um, So... Uh, then Jesus celebrates that Last Supper with them. You have the breaking of the bread. Uh, um, You have several of the same stuff that's going on. Uh, He predicts that one of them is going to betray him. Judas uh, leaves the table and goes to betray Jesus. So this is certainly the same thing. And then afterward, just like in the synoptics, Jesus goes out to the garden, um, and then he's arrested. And the next day he's crucified. What's interesting is when we look at the Gospel of John, not only was the Last Supper not a Passover meal, in contrast to what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said, but when the Jews, Jewish leaders deliver up Jesus to Pilate, it says they didn't follow him into the Praetorium so that they wouldn't be defiled and could eat the Passover that evening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's important to recognize that, according to the book of Exodus, the Passover had to be eaten all before sunrise, and anything that was left over had to be burned. So, in other words, there were no leftovers when it came to the Passover. Mm -hmm. So, it would seem that John has the Passover, or, uh, yeah, that John has the Passover on a different day than the synoptics. Um... It's, it's also interesting to note that the time in John in which Jesus is crucified is different. Mark has it at 9 a.m. John says Jesus was delivered to be crucified just after noon. Um, now, some have tried to say, well, there was a Jewish way of telling time and a Roman way of telling time. That's possible. We don't know for sure. It's possible. Um, and that it's possible. You could account for it that way. But it doesn't account for the difference in days. So Craig Keener, in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of John, suggests that um, he appeals to the Mishnah, Jewish uh, literature from the second, third century. And the Mishnah says that when the Passover fell on a Sabbath,
0: um, that the burnt offerings, not the Passover, but the burnt offerings, which were offered on every Sabbath,
1: would have to be moved back two hours in order to accommodate the sacrifices in the Temple for the Passover meal. So the burnt offerings were typically offered around 2.30 in the afternoon so if you move those back two hours that places it at 12.30 or just after noon. So Keener suggests that what John may be doing here is that he has changed the day and the time of Jesus's crucifixion in order to make the theological points that Jesus is the burnt offering for our sins and our Passover lamb. And this would have been something that's entirely uh, allowable with an ancient biography, you could certainly do this stuff. So um, that I, if, if this is what John is doing, and, and John dislocates or displaces elsewhere, such as the woman anointing Jesus and possibly even the overturning of the table, the, the temple tables. Um, since John does this elsewhere, um, You know, we have a look at this as a serious possibility that that this is what John is doing here. He has displaced the day and time of Jesus' crucifixion in order to make theological points. Mm -hmm. So that's not to say that the crucifixion didn't happen or that Jesus didn't celebrate a a Last Supper with his disciples. It doesn't change any of that.
3: Okay. Well, let's go to a third one. And what's a third form of a that you find in the Greco-Roman biographies that would help explain contradictions?
1: Well, spotlighting is certainly one. Um, Spotlighting, I find, of all the compositional devices of Plutarch I've been able to see so far, of these five, spotlighting is the most frequent. Um, You know, during a theatrical performance, uh, you can imagine the actors, actresses up on the stage and then all of a sudden the lights go out and a spotlight will shine on one of the actors. And the others are there, but you don't see them. Um, so that spotlight is being shown on that particular character. Now, in a similar way, uh, in, in 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 ancient literature, someone could shine their literary spotlight. So for uh, example, it would be like... Um, if an author directs focus, like Plutarch directs his focus on his subject, the subject of his biography, to the point that he describes that subject's involvement while neglecting to ma- mention others who were likewise involved, in that sense, Plutarch is shining his literary spotlight on his character. So, let me give you an example. In 63-62 BC, there was what was called the Catilinarian Conspiracy, mm-hmm. um, There was a guy named Catiline, and he was a Roman senator. He had run for consul and had made a second bid for the consul, and and both were unsuccessful. And in this case, he had lost, uh, or Cicero was in office at this point. And um, so Catiline is is quite upset, and he decides that he's going to kill all the senators, burn the city, and then rebuild it as its dictator. Um, Well the conspiracy is found out uh, because some letters are delivered to Crassus one night. Uh, One's to Crassus, and then the others are to other senators, informing them of the conspiracy. So Crassus immediately takes these letters with uh, two other guys. Uh, One is Marcullus, and the other is Metellus. And the three of them go to Cicero's house at night. They wake up Cicero, and... One of these letters is addressed to Cicero, so Crassus reads his own letter to him, Cicero reads the letter, and he gives them all these letters to the other senators, and Cicero calls a meeting of the Senate the next day, and they get the conspirators. Um, Well, that's in the life of Cicero, how it's reported, but in Plutarch's life of Crassus, he only reports Crassus going to Cicero by night. In other words, Marcullus and Metellus are not mentioned in this biography. They're there, and in fact, Plutarch knows about them uh, because he wrote his biography of Cicero before writing his biography of Crassus. So he knows about these guys, but he doesn't mention them. They're irrelevant to the story. Mm -hmm. So he shines his literary spotlight on Crassus. Mm -hmm. So this is a difference between the life of Cicero and the life of Crassus. You can look at it and say, well, how many people went to visit Cicero at night? Was it just Crassus, or was it Crassus, Metellus, and Mercullus? Well, it depends which biography you read of Plutarch. you could say, if yeah. you were Hermit.
3: Yeah, depends um, on which Plutarch
1: you read. That's right. So, um, it, uh, but this is not a contradiction. It is a compositional device we can call spotlighting.
3: Well, before we go to the gospels and discuss that, I have to remind everyone that everything we do here is listener-supported, And that includes CYI Worldwide Grok Talk Radio itself, which you can go to cyiworldwide.com and find out how to donate there if you want to support the ministry that they're doing as a whole. But if you want to support Deeper Waters individually, well, I'm going to do this a little bit different way than I normally would due to the nature of my guest on here, but there are some ways you can support us that aren't done through my guest, and that would be, for instance you can go to the Amazon store that we've got online, and you can find it from my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com, and there is a donate button there by way, but if you go to the Amazon store and you buy a book from there, we will get some of the proceeds from that purchase. So, look, you get a good apologetics book of of what kind you want, including books that have been shown on the podcast, and at the same time, you make a donation to a ministry you support. So, Hey, how can you go wrong, with something like that? And then, of course, there's Defining Inerrancy, that's come out recently. And that's a book that J.P. Holding and myself together I have co-written, and you can find that on Amazon. And if you make that purchase, there we get some proceeds from that. And in fact, JP's recently put together what's going to be coming out soon, a book made from several blog posts I've written. Dealing with the new atheism So that will be out soon as well And that's going to be solely me as the offer Which means I'll get a little bit more Proceeds than normal and I hope you buy that But if you want to make a donation To me otherwise And in fact if they want to make a donation To your ministry Mike uh, they're First off when they, If they want to make a donation to Your ministry what do they do?
1: Well they can go to RisenJesus.com and we have a Secured donation page there um, so they can, they can sign up, they can do a one-time donation, they can do a recurring donation, like monthly. Um, they can, you know, uh, do that on their credit card and get their uh, miles or points for that. Um, they can stop at any time they want. So, yeah, we're, we're looking for new donors because we want to expand our ministry and, and mm-hmm. focus more on university campuses. So, uh, yeah, we would love to have some, uh, add, we're looking for new support team members and we would love that. Um, if, and, and also, they can go and support you in, in deeper waters um, by coming to our website and you know, signing up to donate that way. Um, but if they do that, it, so those of you who are listeners, if you want to support Nick and you want to do it through our website, and the advantage of doing it through risenjesus.com is that uh, we're a 501c3, so all of your donations will be tax deductible as allowable by law. So if you wanted to go to me, just sign up, and and that's it. You're good to go. If you wanted to go to Nick, just sign up, but then send us a separate email informing us of your donation and that this is to go to Nick Peters, and then we will ensure that it does. And that will allow us to tell the difference between the two.
3: And if you're not sure about how to do that, you can just send me an email and say, hey, I made a donation to you. Through Risen Jesus, can you get in touch with Mike and let him know, and I can handle it that same way, to That's correct, yep. And when they make a, when anyone makes a donation to me through you, we also get every penny of that donation.
1: Yes. Well, I think um, we have a service that takes the, um, the service that... Um, they deduct a very small amount, 2%, 2.5%, something like that. That doesn't go to us. That's just for the service mm-hmm. so that we can have a secured website. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't keep any of that. You get all of it.
0: hmm
3: And if you are like the podcast and all work is being done here, you want to see it kept going, then do the same. Then start making your donations. And I encourage you to do the same with Mike's ministry. That's one that definitely needs to keep going as well.
1: I appreciate it, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, let's go on to spotlighting in the Gospels, man. And, oh my gosh, there are several, several places I can think of where we can say spotlighting seems to take place, such as well, how many demoniacs were there, or how many blind men, or how many angels at the tomb. All of these would be examples of spotlighting, wouldn't they?
1: Could, could very well be. Mm-hmm. Some seem to be more um, certain that it's spotlighting than others. Mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, for example, um, uh, two of them in the resurrection narratives uh, you know, John's Gospel reports that Mary Magdalene got up early, went to the tomb, found it empty, whereas the other Gospels report it was multiple women. Um, but it's real interesting, in John's Gospel, when Mary comes back, she says, they've taken the Lord, and we don't know where they've laid him, which could suggest that there were other women there with her. Um, so that could certainly be spotlighting that, John is shining his literary spotlight on Mary Magdalene because she was the spokesperson there. She was the major woman who visited the tomb. Um, It's also interesting to note that uh, in John's Gospel that when Mary Magdalene tells them, Peter and the beloved disciple go and run to the tomb and find it empty. Whereas in Luke's Gospel, after the women report, it says that Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Well, was it just Peter, or was it Peter and the beloved disciple? Mm -hmm. Well, in Luke, when it mentions Peter getting up and running to the tomb, you, you, you go down 12 verses later, and this is where Jesus is talking to the man's disciples. And, um, and it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And it, it, they're telling Jesus, unaware that it's Jesus, they're telling Jesus what happened. And it says, you know, this morning, uh, our women folk went to the tomb. Some of our women went to the tomb and found it empty and saw angels. And then some of our own went to the tomb and found that as the women had said, well, wait a minute, Luke, just 12 verses later, you mentioned Peter going to the tomb. You didn't mention anyone else. Now you're saying some of our own. Well, P- uh, Luke seems to, to be employing spotlighting there. So we can see this happening with the number of women who went to the tomb. It seems that uh, John is spotlighting Mary Magdalene. And then in Luke's Gospel, Luke seems to be spotlighting, sh- shining his literary spotlight on Peter. So then you do have to ask, as you had said a little earlier, um, what about the number of angels at the tomb? Matthew and Mark say one. Luke and John say two. Could Matthew and Mark be shining their literary spotlight on the angel who did the talking at the empty tomb? I think that's very conceivable. And since spotlighting is so dominant throughout Plutarch's lives, again, this is the most common literary device I've found in Plutarch we would expect to find it on a regular basis in the Gospels, or at least we shouldn't be surprised to find it on a regular basis in the Gospels. And so I, I do think that this could account for many of those occasions where one Gospel reports one person, whereas another Gospel reports two or more being at the same event.
3: Okay, three down, two to go. What's the fourth method that you find being used in Plutarch?
1: Um, Transferral. Mm-hmm. Transferral is when uh, an ancient author knowingly takes what was said by one person and places it on the lips of another. Um, now, uh, a real clear example of transferral in Plutarch is in the life of Marcus Cato. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, so Pompey and Crassus get elected. They were consuls serving in the year 55. Again, you've got to wait 10 years before you can even uh sue for the consulship again um but in 53 bc rome was in a state of great chaos uh tremendous chaos um it, it could have collapsed at any point and so as a uh drastic means pompey is re-elected consul um uh, and he's re-elected as the sole consul um this uh, this these were just really desperate times and uh, they felt that uh, nobody wanted this to happen, but they felt that they had to do this, uh, and that Pompey was the only person in Rome at that point who could really restore the influence and restore order. So um, he takes over in January 1st, 52 B.C., as the sole consul. One of the things he does is he sets up a new law that says um, when a person is being tried— The defendant could not bring in someone who would read an encomium. Now, an encomium is a lavish speech that just heaps praises upon praise on the defendant. So it'd be kind of like, um, well, uh, you know, someone, this guy is guilty of murder. Yes, but he makes great milkshakes. He's a he's a uh, when he worked at the fast at McDonald's when he was a teenager, and he was a great. He's been a great dad. He's been a great husband. He's given to the poor. Well, wait, that has nothing to do with whether he committed this crime. You know, so Pompey said you couldn't read these encomiums. Well, then um, Plutarch reports that Pompey broke his own law. So in the life of Marcus Cato, it says that Pompey. Uh, he was out of the city at that point, and so he sent an emissary. He, he wrote an encomium for his friend, who was a defendant in trial, and he sent uh, an emissary into the city of Rome to read this encomium at the trial. And at that trial, Cato stood up and objected uh, so much that he was kicked off the jury. Um, so uh, that's in the life of Cato. Now, when you read the same story in the life of Pompey, it's interesting to know that Pompey himself, according to Plutarch, came into the city and read the Encomium at his friend's trial. Mm -hmm. So, um, he transfers it from the emissary that Pompey had actually sent, and we know that that's the way it happened because it's reported by other historians, Um, and he transfers it to Pompey himself. Well, Mm -hmm. why would he do this? Well, because Pompey was behind the encomium. Mm -hmm. He's the one that wrote it. So rather than just saying that he sent an emissary, he just gets right, cuts right to the point and has Pompey delivered himself. That's Mm transferal.
3: An obvious example I can think of as taking place in the Gospels is the centurion and his servant.
1: That's correct. Um, So in... Um, I think it's Luke's gospel, Mm -hmm. the uh, the centurion has this servant who's sick, and so the centurion sends, he hears about Jesus coming, and he wants Jesus' help to heal his, his servant, who's very valuable to him. And so he sends some Jewish leaders to Jesus, and Jewish elders, and they say, hey, the centurion has contributed to the building of a synagogue, this guy's a worthy man, please heal his servant. So Jesus says, all right, let's go. So they head toward the centurion's home. Well, the centurion learns about this, and so he sends some of his friends to meet Jesus and said, okay, the centurion says, no, 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 don't come. Thank you for, you know, doing this for me. But listen, I'm a man of authority. Um, I tell this soldier, go, and he goes. I tell this soldier, come, and he comes. I tell this servant to do this, and he does that. So uh, I'm a man of authority. I understand this. So look, I'm unworthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So Jesus praises the centurion for his faith, and he heals his servant from a distance. The centurion never even sees Jesus in this case. Now, when you come to the same story in Matthew, Matthew has the centurion go out himself and meet Jesus and say, please come and heal my servant. And Jesus says, let's go. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. Uh, Listen, I am unworthy to have you come under my roof but I'm a man of authority, yada, yada, just say the word, and Jesus praises the centurion for his faith and heals his daughter, or, healed, I'm sorry, heals his uh, servant. So we see the same kind of transferal here by a substitution mm-hmm. as we do in Plutarch. This mm-hmm. is not a contradiction. It's a compositional
3: device. Mm-hmm. Well, that takes care of four different aspects of him. Okay, there's one more left. What's the final one? Well, another one is simplification, and uh, simplification is—it's.
0: Um, let, let's put it this way. Plutarch um, says in the first chapter of his Life of Alexander the Great that the reason, the the
1: objective behind ancient biography, was to illuminate the character of his subject. Mm -hmm. So Plutarch says, look, you're going to have to overlook the fact that I'm not going to uh, report a lot of military, great military exploits. I'll do those if it helps my objective here. My objective is to illuminate the person's character. So I may do an event or report an event that might seem insignificant to you compared to a military exploit. But... I'm reporting this one instead and, and devoting space to it because it tells us about the character of the person. That's the objective of biography. If you want to hear more about the events, you've got to read histories. So um, with that in mind, we come to the Gospels and understand that what ancient Greco-Roman biographers, or people writing Greco-Roman biography, what they're doing is they're trying to illuminate the character of their person. hmm uh, their subject now um, let's look at Plutarch real quick um, Brutus is one of my favorite characters of the Romans
3: Dante uh, would disagree with you I think what's that Dante would disagree with you I think
1: <laughs> who was Dante
3: Dante Dante's in yeah, front I know, of I know
1: he was who was his favorite character
3: well I don't know who it was but I do know about in the Tim's Circle he had Brutus Cassius and Judas being constantly eaten by the devil
1: Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, he wouldn't like Brutus then. Um, so, well, Marcus Cato, I think, is my favorite, but Brutus is right up there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, um, and these guys did have flaws. They had some serious flaws, but, you know, of all those characters, they're, they're, they're pretty good. Um, so you, you've got uh, Brutus. He was considered to be a moderate, fair-minded, uh, kind of gentle person, uh, by Roman standards, at least you could say. You know, uh, the Romans were kind of brutal people. Um, but by Roman standards, I'd say Brutus was one of the more moderate, kind ones. People did appreciate him, Even his enemies uh, admired him. And he was kind to his enemies for the most part. Um, he was seemed to have been a good husband, was not a womanizer like some of the others, uh, like Antony and Caesar. Um, but yeah, he seemed to be a pretty good guy. Well, Um, in when the Civil War was going on and it was pretty much between Caesar and Pompey, Mm -hmm. um, Pompey is defeated at Pharsalus in August of 48 BC. Shortly after that Pompey is fleeing to Egypt. He sees this as his last uh, place to go where he might be able to get some safety. Um, when Pompey is out at sea, just offshore of Egypt, he requests permission to come ashore. And so King Ptolemy, the um, brother of Cleopatra, younger brother, he consults with his advisors to say, hey, what should we do here? And, you know, they're talking about this. Well, listen, this guy's being defeated by Caesar. If we take him aboard, Caesar might kill us. Um, if we send him back, they they might, you know, the Romans might get us for refusing uh, safety for another Roman so what are we going to do here so um, uh, uh, one of the advisors um, says well let's kill Pompey and um, so they talk about it they agree on it they they invite and they um, betray Pompey and they kill him um, well Caesar comes later on and because they killed another Roman he seeks the, the people who killed Pompey and um He finds some of them, and he executes them. Well, King Ptolemy, um, he escapes, but he's later captured and executed. But this other guy, who was the main advisor, he escapes. In Plutarch's life of Pompey, at the very end, after reporting Pompey's death, he says that this particular guy was later discovered by Brutus, who subjected him to every sort of torture before killing him. So you have this very sadistic, brutal uh, Brutus in Plutarch's life of Pompey. It probably did happen this way. Um, What's interesting, though, when you read the life of Brutus by Plutarch, he just says that when Brutus captured this guy, he punished him. And that's all that's said. So why doesn't he mention, like he does in the life of uh, Pompey, that he subjected him to every sort of torture before killing him? Well, because this would complicate uh, Plutarch's portrait of Brutus as a fair-minded, moderate, gentle Roman. And um, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to complicate the portrait. So he's not really lying about it. He's just omitting that information so as not to complicate the portrait. Um, So this is kind of what we find. You know, Cicero reports in a letter to Atticus that Brutus at one point approved of a loan to Cyprus at an annual interest rate of 48% that crippled the city. Um, this isn't mentioned in Plutarch's life of Brutus. Why? Because it would complicate the overall portrait of Brutus. So, if we take the entirety of Brutus's adult life, uh, or as a Roman ruler, was he a gentle, moderate, fair-minded Roman? If we take the entirety, we'd say yes.
2: Mm-hmm. But did he
1: have some serious flaws and hiccups? that betrayed that character? Yes. But Plutarch doesn't want to complicate that. He wants, so he simplifies it by omitting certain details. That's what simplification is.
3: When does this happen in the Gospels?
1: Well, I think we see this happening um, in the Passion scene um, in the Gospel of John. When we read the Passion scene in the Synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see a Jesus who's quite distraught over what's to take place. Um, you know, he's in the garden, and he's praying, Abba, Father, if it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Not as I will, but as you will. But if, let this cup pass from me. I want out of this, if, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, now, what's interesting is when we come to the Gospel of John, we don't really find a Jesus struggling in the garden. You find one statement about Jesus' struggle, but it just doesn't epitomize the Jesus we see. We see a Jesus that is completely uh, in control of his emotions and um, uh, doesn't seem to be sweating this much at all. Um, he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't pray to be. He, he, he says uh, instead of saying, "God, if it's if if it's possible, please." Uh, Deliver me from this hour, let this cup pass from me. In John's Gospel, he says, um, uh, Shall I ask God to deliver me from this hour? No. Um, shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me to drink? Uh, no, I was born for this purpose. So some of the, the things that Jesus says in the synoptics are, are cast quite differently in the Gospel of John. Now, so we get this different picture of Jesus in the garden in John's Gospel. And then on the cross, um, there's no cry out, you know, why have you forsaken me? This would have been kind of embarrassing, um, because in the Jewish martyrdom literature that predates and even comes after uh, Jesus, you find the Jewish martyrs, like in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, or 2 Maccabees 14, or some of these other Jewish, other Jewish literature, Um You'll you'll find them saying, God, I have not forsaken your law. And, um, you know, I could have uh, foregone this torture and this brutal death by forsaking your law, but I have not done that. Uh, So you have Jesus saying, why have you, God, forsaken me? Uh, That's completely different. You've got these guys um, in, in the Jewish martyrdom literature, you know, like the second Maccabee 7 with the seven Jewish brothers saying, Go ahead, you know, uh, you can peel the skin off my head, you can cut out my tongue, you can cut off my hands and feet, and things like this. You can do it, go ahead and do it. I don't care because I'm getting these back in the resurrection. It's like, uh, um, yeah. Your know, racks and racks and stones may break my bones, but resurrection awaits me, is what the Jewish martyrs are saying. But, you know, Jesus. Uh, God let this cup pass from me, if at all possible, Mm -hmm. in the synoptics. Again, this is all kind of brushed out of the Gospel of John. Why? John is simplifying his portrait of Jesus because his portrait of Jesus is Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's God himself, Mm -hmm. God with us. Now, the synoptics, I do believe, portray the same kind of portrait, but John, as I mentioned earlier in your program, does so with a clarity that is far greater than what we find in the synoptics. Yeah, I, so think, I think that's what he's doing in simplifying
3: the account here. I think an example of this from the Old Testament also is that when we look in the King's books in the Old Testament, we find the mistake that Solomon had where he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But when you get to Chronicles, for some reason the Chronicles just decides to leave that detail out.
1: Well, that could be, certainly be a, a case of simplification.
3: And I also think of another kind of detail where... It, the modern example I think about this is, if I had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door after we're done here, and I start having a conversation with them, I'm going to be willing to call you sometime soon afterwards and say, hey, here's how a conversation went, and we'll have a good back and forth about it. Now, I'll call my parents also afterwards, but I'm not going to tell them the same thing, and the reason I'm not is not because I love them less or something of that sort, but because they don't understand theology and apologetics the way you and I do, so a lot of it would be wasted. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so you're going to simplify, you're going to mm-hmm. probably compress your account. Yep. For those reasons, yep.
3: Mm-hmm. Now, that's all the uh, things from Plutarch that we've talked about. So now what people are really wondering, I'm sure, is, is there a book coming?
1: <laughs> well, I hope so. My plans are for a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working on this for six years so far, Mm -hmm. so I'm hoping to complete my research on Plutarch by the end of this year Mm -hmm. um, to get through the remaining ten stories in Plutarch that appear two or more times, and then next year I would start writing the book, Mm -hmm. and I'm anticipating that will take a year to do. So my hopes will be that um, the book will be available around uh, November of 2016.
3: Mm -hmm. Now this is going to be, in fact, the first of its kind, isn't it?
1: It will. And uh, when I embarked on this with Plutarch, um, to be honest with you, I I did I I figured that this had been done before, not necessarily in regard to the Gospels, but in regard to Plutarch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so uh, I, I thought, you know, before I get started in this, because this will take a lot of work, let me see how much of this has already been done. So. I'd rather just read a book than have to do this research myself. Mm. So I contacted Christopher Pelling, who several have told me are, is probably the, the world's foremost authority on Plutarch. He mm. teaches at Oxford. And I emailed him, and I told him what I was thinking of here, and I said, I've got to think that this has been done before. And um, so can you tell me where I might find some information on the composition of the devices in Plutarch? Um, so he wrote back to me, and he said, uh, well, really, not much has been done on this at all, in fact. He says, and all that I know that's been done on it is an essay that he had written um, that's been published in a book titled Plutarch and History. It's chapter four in that book, mm-hmm. and it's kind of an expensive book. So if anyone's thinking of reading it, they could purchase it or get it in a library loan. Uh, but it's a great book. And uh, in there, he presents six compositional devices but he, he does it a little bit differently than I do, um, because you know he's a classicist, and so he compares Plutarch's rendition of the story with, not only with how Plutarch renders it elsewhere, but also how it's rendered by Suetonius, and Tacitus, and Cassius Dio, people like that. So he's comparing Plutarch with other ancient historians as well, and I think that's completely legitimate, and that was my original intent to do something like that, too. So he has one more compos- – actually, has a few more compositional devices that I don't have, but I have uh, – of my five, two of them are compositional devices that he doesn't use. I think spotlighting and simplification. Um, but he – so he's going to have three others that I don't have, but you have to appeal to other ancient historians and biographers in order to arrive at those. Mm -hmm. The reason I took the uh, approach that I did is because if you are going to compare, let's say, Tacitus and Suetonius, Plutarch and Cassius Dio, um, Mm -hmm. and they tell the story differently, that could be because of compositional devices, or it could be because they're using different sources, or it could be because they were, one or more of them were in error or it could be because they changed the story for various reasons. Um, When I'm comparing with Plutarch with Plutarch and identifying patterns of the differences, that's going to be a a more secure way of identifying the compositional devices because it's the same author reporting the same story pretty much using the same source material. Mm. Um, So I'm not saying that Pelling's method's wrong. I think it's a great method. It would take a whole lot more work the findings aren't going to be quite as secure as just simply comparing Plutarch with Plutarch. And you've got to limit your research project somewhere, and this is already quite involved. So that's how I've limited it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this has not been done on a comprehensive basis before, like I'm doing it now. Mm-hmm. And it certainly hasn't been done at all in terms of relating it to the Gospels. So this really is groundbreaking stuff, both for the classics as well as New Testament studies.
3: And you were talking about how expensive Christopher Perring's book is. This is one of the advantages of a Kindle because I did just look, I was talking with someone yesterday who said it doesn't cost as much on Kindle, and if you want to get Christopher Perring's book on Kindle, it's nineteen seventy five Plutarch in history Yes,
1: whoa, well, well, I think I paid sixty some dollars for my copy, so um yeah, that's great.
3: yeah, you know, just think if you'd had a Kindle, you could have saved yourself forty bucks.
1: Bet Well, I am going to start using that because it just makes sense. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, this is fun stuff. It is groundbreaking. I, I think we're just seeing some really new things. Um, this study in Plutarch has uh, yielded a lot of fruit that um, makes it I, I think that we're going to be able to understand the Gospels better as a result.
3: And it's interesting that despite what me and your critics have been saying, one of the reasons that you're doing this is in fact to answer the charge that there are contradictions in the Gospels and say, no, these are just things that are misunderstood in the Gospels.
1: Yeah, that was my original intent, uh, was to understand the differences or or to refute contradictions. You know, right now it's more of just um, understanding the Gospels better, Mm -hmm. although I do think that this is going to have a significant impact in undermining uh, objections to the historic reliability of the Gospels based on contradictions. I, I just don't think that that is a legitimate response any longer. But I do think that this helps us as we come to the Gospels. I mean, let me just share one thing. It, it's, uh, this thing about ancient biography and what it can shed light on, um, you'll find people like Bart Ehrman and others who will say, yeah, John, the Gospel of John talks about Jesus as being God, but you just don't find that in the synoptics. Well, one day I was just thinking about the, the Gospel of Mark, and I was reading through it several times, and um, it just kind of clicked with me. It said, whoa, wait a minute. You know, Plutarch did say the objective of ancient biography was to illuminate the character of the person. Mm-hmm. So think about this in Mark. And I take Mark as the earliest gospel to be written, as do most scholars. So the very first verse it talks about, uh, the very first verse chapter 1 of Mark, says, You know, this is in fulfillment of, I think, the prophet Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. Mm -hmm. Preparing the way of the Lord make straight the paths of our God. And then, what does he go on to say in chapter 1? Who's the one preparing the way of the Lord? Who's the voice of one crying in the wilderness? It's John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Who's he preparing the way for? Jesus. This Mm -hmm. is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Well, The prophecy was to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. And who is Jesus? Lord God. Mm -hmm. Um, Chapter 2. Jesus heals a a paralytic and forgives him for his sins. And the Jewish leaders say, uh, hey, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's right. What's he saying? Jesus is God because he can forgive sins. Um, You've got Jesus... Disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, and uh, the Jewish leaders object and say, "Um, Hey, you know, wait a minute here. Um, You're breaking the the Ten Commandments about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And Jesus basically says, Chill off, guys. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) What? You know, it's God who created the Ten Commandments, and you're claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath now? Mm -hmm. What's that saying about Jesus? Go a few chapters later. Um, Jesus is exercising demons, and um, um, the Jewish leaders say, you know, hey, you're casting out demons by Satan, and Jesus says, hey, you know, before uh, a strong, uh, the, before a guy comes in and, and robs a house, you've got to bind the strong man, the guy who's the owner of the house, bind the strong man, and then you can plunder all his goods. Well, Jesus is saying that in, in doing so, in uh, exercising demons, He is binding the strong man who is Satan and plundering his kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now what human can bind Satan and plunder his kingdom? You go to chapter 9 and you've got uh, Jesus' disciples are trying to cast out a demon out of a boy. They can't, they're they're not successful in doing so. Jesus is coming down from the mountain with uh, his three disciples and uh, the boy's father comes up and says, Hey, can you help me here? And Jesus speaks the word, and the demon comes out. Later his disciples say, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, because this kind can only come out with prayer to God. Well, wait a minute. Jesus didn't pray to God. He just spoke the word, and it came out. What is that saying in terms of Mark portraying Jesus? Hmm. And then you've got the apocalyptic son of man sayings, which we could spend a lot of time on. Um, The the bottom line here is Mark is, when we understand the Gospels are ancient biographies, Greco-Roman biographies, then it becomes crystal clear that Mark is presenting Jesus as being God in some sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So this does shed light. It's just really cool stuff that we're seeing.
3: I think one of the mistakes many moderns make is that they think you have to say something explicitly with your words in order for you to be saying that.
1: Yeah, it's just anachronistic. You know, we have to learn to judge the Gospels according to the rules that they operated by in their day and not impart our ideas of modern precision upon them. Mm -hmm. Um, They did not, as Ben Witherington says, they did not have the kind of legal precision in mind that we have today, and we have to stop expecting it. Now, I'm not saying that this is easy. This is something that I've struggled with for several years. as I'm reading John now, I'm struggling through some things to understand what John is doing. I would agree with Tom Wright. I love my wife. I just don't understand her. I love John. I just don't understand him. Um, And, uh, you know, it takes some adaptation, but I've had to recalibrate my thinking about the Gospels. I do believe that they're utterly historically reliable. I believe they're divinely inspired but I don't expect the kind of legal precision, and I understand that there's some literary things that are going on here that we may not necessarily use today and that I may feel uncomfortable with, but at the end of the day, I've got to uh, I think a high view of Scripture demands that I work hard to understand the Gospels as God has given them to me, and submit myself to them as God has given them to me, rather than trying to squeeze and force them and contort them to fit a modernist understanding of how I think God should have given them because of my knowledge about the conventions of modern history. I don't think that is a high view of God or of Scripture, to do it the latter way.
3: Well, like we have less than five minutes left. We've already talked about the some, but if people want to find out more about you and your ministry and what you're doing, where do they need to go? Well, our, our
1: our website would be the best place, risenjesus.com, and you know they can uh, view many of my debates. Most of my debates are there. Uh, I've got a lot of my lectures. I've got a, a short series that's been fun to produce called Musings, in which I take just a uh, just a little topic that's mm-hmm. like, usually uh, three or four minutes long, and I deal with it and uh, kind of just interesting stuff uh, that I've learned about the past. And um, they can email questions, comments, um, if they're interested in my speaking somewhere, they can email and request uh, and tell me about their event and, and ask if I'd be interested in speaking at it. Um, so, yeah, they can find out. I've got some articles up there. So they can find out about that, all about me there, on my website, risenjesus.com.
3: Okay, and now if that's has four minutes left, what's the final message you would like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today?
1: Well, I, I I find Christianity to be, to be just great to be involved and to follow Jesus. I've been a Christian since the age of 10, so about 43 years. And um, the Lord has been very good to me. Um, I love being a Christian. I love being involved in the church. The church is not perfect. Nothing's perfect um, except the Lord himself. Um, but it's a lot of fun to do this kind of stuff. I love apologetics. Um, Don't feel, like if you're a doubter, don't be afraid to doubt. John the Baptist doubted. Abraham doubted. And yet, Abraham is listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Jesus said of John the Baptist, no greater man has been born of woman than John the Baptist. So if he can say this, if Jesus can say this about John the Baptist, if the author of Hebrews can place uh, Abraham in the Faith Hall of Fame, and in fact he's the MVP, if anything, of the Faith Hall of Fame, but I, I can't think that God looks down on us, uh, those of us who struggle with doubts at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, sometimes understanding the Bible is not an easy thing. In Second Peter, Peter said that uh, even the letters of Paul are, are often difficult to understand. So um, it shouldn't surprise us that there are, are going to be things difficult to understand about the Scriptures. But that shouldn't deter us. Um, it's a fun journey. It's not always fun It can be difficult But it's a fun journey To study the scriptures To understand what's going on The Christian life is an adventure I love it I wouldn't trade it for anything
3: Well, okay. It's always great to have you on here And I hope we'll see you back here again sometime Be
1: happy to do so, Nick
3: Well, I'd like to remind everyone That next week Carl Pan is going to be on It's going to be a fascinating show Talking about Is God a Moral Monster? But my thanks to Mike for coming on For now, I'm Nick Peters And I'm signing off until next time.
1: It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, CYIWorldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio